0: as we get started. The ushers do have sermon notes. They're going to move through the auditorium as you're going to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Just raise your hand if you didn't get one of those copies out of the bulletin, the sermon notes. They'll hand that to you as we do. Romans chapter 12, a familiar passage. There's an area up north in Alaska where they have, at different times of the year, they have phenomenal things happen. One is the salmon run. We're all sudden, in that months of July going into the month of August. You will see the schools of fish that are running going. Going up the river that it's an absolutely amazing sight. The bear will get there. And in one of the major parks they put up those cameras like uh, like we have in Pennsylvania that watch the different eagles at different spots. They have these cameras you can go online, you watch the bears just standing there catching these fish that are trying to go upstream. You can stand overlooking dams within the city of Anchorage. You can stand there looking over this dam and we'll see this, this whole flow of water red as this carpet filled with salmon trying to get up the dam. And right there in the city of Anchorage, right there there's the town right off, you know, right over here, off the rivers here, and there's the town and houses, and there's fishermen gathered like that all along the stream, and there's bear that mix in right with them because the bear are preoccupied. Now don't get in the bear's way, but otherwise they're fishing. Now a question for you, what do they call these fishermen who stand like this shoulder to shoulder along the bank? What do they have a term for them? Do you know what that type of fishing is? Combat fishing, that's right. They call it combat fishing. Got a question for you. What do they call this large school of famine? famine, Salmon that are coming up the river, they have a form for that. They call them not a school of fish, but a fever. A fever, because they're feverish, there's so many clustered together, they call it a fever of salmon trying to go up. I want you to go to Romans chapter 12, and look with me this morning, chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, wait I won't do it all today. Okay, but there is a fever of verses that deal with how we relate with one another. It's an amazing situation. Just go through some of the passage with me and just jump down. How many different times he talks about how we should interact with each other in this one cluster or fever of of a passage. All these different references that he mentions about how to treat one another. Like in chapter 12 verses 4 and 5. He mentions and makes this comment about how we should interact. For as we have many members in one body, we are all members, have not the same office. So we being many are one body. Every one members one of another. And then he talks about love one another with brotherly love. We read in verse 15, rejoice with them that rejoice. Weep with them that weep. We read in verse 16, be of the same mind one towards another. We read in verse 18, live peaceably with all men. We read in chapter 13 verse 8, owe no man anything but to love one another. Chapter 14, let us not judge one another, which we'll get into next week. Then he talks about let us follow after the things of peace and edify one another. Then he talks about in chapter 15, let us please Please everyone his neighbor to good to edification, and you keep on going. There's a whole fever of verses that deal with that. Now, what's interesting is putting it in its setting of when he deals with those unity, those one another passages, which fits this series on this idea of united we stand. How do we interact with one another as believers, especially as a body of Christ as a local church? It's interesting where he places all of these verses, so many of them in this fever or cluster of verses. If you back up and go through the book, here's where you find what's really interesting how it unfolds. In chapters 1 and 3, he's basically talking about what we are before God. Every one of us are sinners. Those are the texts that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one is in that whole section. Then in chapters 4 and 5 he talks about what God did for us. Talks about salvation. We are justified by faith. It is through the faith in Jesus Christ by one man sin enters into the world so also by one man forgiveness enters into the world. Then in chapters 6 and 7 he talks about what God is doing in us. After we are born again after we have recognized we are sinners called upon, upon Jesus Christ to forgive us our sins and to save us, no longer trusting in baptism or our good looks or our money or our or whatever we accomplish at school or at home or at work, but in the work of Jesus Christ, then we get born again, we are one of his saved children. we are a saint at that moment, then he works in us that 's what we said verses chapter six and seven, and that is the growth that we have growing in Christ. What shall we say then? Shall we who uh, no longer know sin? shall we continue in sin? He says, God forbid you that are dead to sin no longer live in sin. And he talks about how he's sanctifying us, helping us to grow, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Then, in chapters 8 through 11, he talks about his promises to us. The promise that all things work together for good. The promise that the Holy Spirit lives within us. The promise that nothing shall be able to separate us from the Love of God. That's all in chapters 8, all the way through chapter 11, how God has said, I promise and what I have decreed, you will get into heaven once you're born again. It's not going to change. Nothing can take you out of my hand. And then what he does after he gives all that theology, he talks about how we should live our service, and how we should interact with one another, how we should serve God Almighty. In fact, he starts off in chapter 12 with that word that refers to all of what's gone on before, I beseech you, therefore, because of all that I have taught you before, then you ought to, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What he's got here is he is showing us that Christian beliefs should affect Christian behavior. That when we come and we, we understand the, you know, the word of God and we understand the, the Christian truths that we're sinners, that we're saved by grace alone. And once we're saved, God is going to work in our heart and he's going to keep us secure until he gets us to heaven. Once we understand that, that should impact how we live day by day. Or in other words, that our Christian doctrine should turn into actual godly deeds. That we should behave a certain way based upon all that we believe. All that we know is true. In other words, our, our Christianity ought to be authentic. It ought not just to be something that we learn about and theoretical and something that, that we, we learn the trivia and we can answer the questions and, and we can do the puzzles that are given up, but rather it should have impact our Sunday morning understanding of God should impact how we live Sunday afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, where, how we live outside the walls of worship. How we live in the sense of at school, at work, at play, at the store, when we're at home And so he talks about authentic Christianity. I think that's a real key here. But the problem is many people aren't so authentic. There's a fellow who his name is Ron Smitty that uh, Rob Smitty I have his name on the wall there that gives you a little bit of a story. This guy became heroic in the community that he lived in. They ran papers, articles about him they put him on the news and he became a local celebrity for this reason. He volunteered one of his kidneys for a perfect stranger. He had heard about somebody that was in dire straits so he went to the hospital saw that he was a match and he volunteered and so they did the surgery that. He became a donor and everybody in town thought, how fabulous, how fantastic. And people were lauding him and lauding him and lauding him until a few months into this, all this, this, these accolades, all of a sudden somebody asked his daughter what she thought of him. Ten-year-old daughter said, I don't think much of him. Now she had a reason for this. She knew that just a couple years before this, he had abandoned her and mom. And he had totally disconnected from his daughter even though he had rights to visit there was no opportunity that he took to come back and visit. He wasn't providing child support and as the years go by he had a lot of of issues with the law because he refused to pay child support did not do anything that he was obligated to and in her mind he was a phony. He was this hero to the public but where it came to everyday living, where it came to his own family he was a hypocrite. He had abandoned them. Well, God is talking about our family relationships and how we relate to one another as believers in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15. And he's saying to you and I that we shouldn't look heroic to the outside. We shouldn't have this, this you know, glitz and glamour, but we should be the real thing. We should be really interested in one another, really greeting one another, really receiving one another, really loving one another, really not judging one another, really edifying one another. That's what he's getting into, authentic Christianity. And so if we're going to talk about, which we will over the next couple of weeks, we're going to get into chapter 14 in particular where it talks about the judgment and where we differ in some of the ways that we apply in our everyday life some of the different Bible verses such as what we should do and what we shouldn't do our standards. We're going to get into it, but before we get into that liberties and legalism, we need to pause at the beginning of this entire section to say, now wait a minute, what is he saying? Where do we start when it comes to authentic Christianity? Before he gets into how we love one another, he starts with a different type of love. Not loving one another, but the most predominant love is loving who? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with That's where he starts with authentic Christianity. We can't love one another unless we back up here. That's chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. In chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 authentic Christianity begins with a genuine walk with the Lord. Not a make believe walk. Not a walk that looks good on Sunday morning and and, you know it has the right attire, the right notes for the song and it has the the right Bible you're carrying and the right this that that. it's authentic walking with God. What is that like? Well according to chapter 12 a that you know very well, he describes it. He says in Romans chapter 12, starting with verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that here's where you start. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your, what? Reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye, what? Transformed by how? The renewing of your mind, so that, what? You may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect, what? will of God. Okay, we're, let's, let's dissect that quickly. Okay, what he's talking about is when he says a real love for God. Authentic walking with God, it starts with a commitment. A commitment that is really important to God. Where God leads the writer to say, I beg you, I beseech you, listen to me. He's raising his voice. He's trying to get the attention. He's ringing the bell. He's pushing the doorbell. He's beeping the horn. He is blowing some type of trumpet saying, this is important, child of God. People who attend church, you who are at the Roman assembly, listen. This commitment is so important. This commitment is real. It's not just theoretical or in. Intentional. This commitment is where you come and it's not just, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to serve God. He's talking about your bodies. He's talking about your everyday life. He's talking about something that's real that that suggests a whole lot more than your future plans. Right now, he says, I want you to present your bodies. I want you to give God right now this sacrifice. I want you to come to the altar and I want you to surrender now, not later, not just theoretical, but in reality, surrender yourself as a living sacrifice. A sacrifice where you put yourself upon the altar. Where you say to God Almighty, I will will give myself to you to do whatever you want me to do it's the idea of living for God he defines it he says I don't want a sacrifice of dead martyrs oh that's commendable somebody that will die for the Lord, somebody that will stand, who in this day and age we see more people martyred than at any time in history, people who are standing for the name of Christ. And there they are in their communities or in their countries that are totally against Jesus Christ and some of our own brethren in the faith, they are dying. They have lost their children, they have lost their spouse, they have lost their job, they have lost they are sacrificing. And their own life is being put on the line because they believe in Jesus Christ. That That's commendable. That is uh, phenomenal. That is something that many of us have never experienced. We're not tried that way and, and we don't know how we would react. We hope that we'd react. Well this much I know according to this text if we're not willing to live for Jesus Christ we won't die for him and he doesn't want just people to die god isn't looking for a cemetery filled with believers he's looking for a place where the believers are actively living for him when they go to their job when they go to school when they are when they are driving down the road and talking with their kids he's looking for individuals that will live for him when it comes to their entertainment when it comes to their attire when it comes to their relationships with others i want a living sacrifice where you are doing much more than just intending to worship, hoping one day in the future, but right now you're saying, God, I will surrender myself to you, I will sacrifice. You know, when He talks about this idea of a living sacrifice, He's not talking about you plea bargaining with Him. He's not talking about you renegotiating a contract with Him. He's not talking like the sports players that we hear about, that they sign contracts and then when the season begins, they want to renegotiate. God isn't doing that with you. God isn't saying, okay, hey, you know, I saw that you followed me in believers baptism which is the first step of sacrifice and you did that for a while but now you're mature, you've grown in the Lord and so now what I'm going to do is I'm looking at you and I'm saying well let's renegotiate your contract I don't, you know, you've done so much for me you don't need to do a whole lot more and here's what, that's not what he's doing that's not what he's calling for. He's calling for you to make a commitment that is a sacrifice that you in a non-negotiable way are saying, I will do whatever you want. I will give you my best, a holy sacrifice. Not something that is, that is given that you're doing your own thing, you're saying your own words, and then all of a sudden he gets leftovers, but rather a holy sacrifice. One that he goes on, he talks about doing what pleases him. Where you are living a life of purity, you are living and practicing a commitment that says, whatever you want me to do, I will do. I surrender my all. That means you want me to forgive, I will forgive. You want me to train, I will train. You want me to witness, I will witness. You want me to love, I will love. You want me to pray, I will pray. You want me to be a, a, a testimony of integrity. I will do that. You want me to speak only holy words, words that are pleasing in your sight. Get rid of the cussing. Get rid of the dirty stories. I will do that, God. God, you want me in the way that, the way that I uh, do my entertainment. I will get rid of those things that are not pleasing to you. I will please you. I will sacrifice for you. I will give you my best. I will give you a holy life. I, I won't present something that's dirty. I, I will give you whatever you want. That sacrifice. He is talking in this text of saying it is reasonable. It is logicos. It is so understandable that you just do this because he is God. He is the one who has, has total control. He is the one who's created. He's the one you're going to answer to. It's totally logical. You surrender and do whatever he wants. Live the way he expects, especially as you look and say, day by day, I will live this way. I will honor you in light, especially out of gratitude. Out of gratitude, not guilt, but gratitude. And so he talks in this text of saying, you know, present your bodies, surrender all because of the mercies of God. Out of gratitude, not because somebody's going to make you feel bad, but what God has done for you. Back up with me. Back up into the first part of the book. And let's just think in for a few moments, what has God given you who are born again? Well, we go all the way back in the book of Romans and we look at the mercies that God has given to you. The mercies that start with the peace of God that comes through the gospel that is so powerful. He talks about the goodness of God that has led you to repentance. He talks about the righteousness of God that he has given you, the holiness, the purity because you came by faith. We read about in chapter 4, verse 7, the blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven. If you are born again, that's you. Your sins are, are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What a mercy. What a gracious God to cover your lying, your cheating, your lusts, to cover your anger, cover your gossip, to cover your selfishness, your greed, your materialism, to cover those areas that you and I would be embarrassed if the world found out about. They are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ in whom we have the hope that we're going to be in the glory of God. The love of God is a mercy that is shed abroad in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is a mercy. We are justified. What a merciful act that God has declared us, not guilty of sin but to be freed of sin. saved from the wrath that is to come. The wrath that could be that tribulation period when all of a sudden these hurricanes like Irma, these storms like Harvey, they will be nothing compared to what the world is experiencing then. Around the world We've been saved from that. What a mercies that God has shown to us. The gift of eternal life. The the idea that we can never be separated from the love of God. We can never lose our fellowship with God. I'm sorry, our relationship with God. That idea that all things work together. These are His mercies. These are His graces to us. These are His gifts. And the writer says, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, he writes and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, Because of what God has done for you, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your reasonable worship. This is so expected of us. This is so understandable that you would give your life to Him. You see, He's calling for us at this chapter to work on a walk with Him. Which starts with this commitment to him. A commitment that says we are genuinely walking with you, but it also involves letting God change you. Letting God change you. That's where he goes on in verse 2. In verse 2 he says, okay, this this love for God, where you start. Stop being conformed to this world, but start being transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The words he uses are interesting. The word for conformed has the idea of being influenced by everything around you, to being pressured, to being molded, to being, you know, like you take that Play-Doh and you press it down over something, you pull it out and there's the mold, there's that object. Or you take it and put it on, what we used to do is put it on the newspaper and you pull some of that print up and be able to see that cartoon character, you know, from the comics. He is saying that's what is happening to the believers, that he's writing to, he says, you are allowing yourselves to be molded to be conformed by the world around you. Were you starting to think the way the world thinks? Were you starting to act the way the world acts? No wonder. No wonder he is has, he has saying this. If he were writing to 2017, he'd be saying, yeah, you gotta stop being conformed. The majority of believers are now holding to, in America, are holding that abortion is okay. The majority of believers who claim to be born again are saying that gay lifestyle is not that bad. The majority of believers are now being influenced to say it is okay to live together before you get married. Being conformed, being pressured, being molded by the world around us and he says we got to stop that. We got to stop letting that happen to us. We have to instead, he goes on, he says, but Allow yourself, that's the command, it's the idea of you don't do this to yourself, you allow a higher authority to transform you, to all of a sudden change you from the inside out. And he uses the word that we get metamorphosed from, the idea of some word that's an inward change, which you all know about. You've all seen the butterfly, you've seen the cocoon, you know how that works. It goes in as a worm and it comes out as this butterfly and it's beautiful and it's marvelous. And he says, this is what I want to do with you. I am at times cocooning you. And I want you to be changed so that the spiritual life that I've placed in you by my mercies will all of a sudden start changing you so that you will become something that is beautiful, something that is glorious, something that will draw others as a light in darkness, as the salt that is cleansing, that is purifying. You will have an impact on others around you that will say, I want to be like, and I want to have what you have. And he says I want to change you that way. I want to change you so that your language is changed. I want to change you so that the way you interact with others is changed. I want to change you so that your lifestyle, your choices of entertainment the way that you work, the way that you walk, the way that you talk I want to metamorphize you. Allow me to change you. And it's the command that says it's up to you. You have to allow him. There's an interesting study that I was doing just to get an idea of some of this idea that of what happens in the silkworm. Oh, they found this out in China hundreds and hundreds of years ago that they found out that using the silk they could make those beautiful fabrics. Well the silk farmers now have this whole method that what they do is they take this caterpillar, this worm, that whatever it starts off the larvae that comes out and starts eating the mulberry bush uh, uh, leaves for the first six weeks before it forms a cocoon and then it goes in this cocoon and it makes its cocoon out of silk. If you take one of those cocoons you can get up to ten football fields of, th- of one thread that is strong and then you can harvest this thing, and and so what the farmers do in these harvesting farms where they where they get the silk they they don 't want the the moth that 's coming out the silkworm itself that has been changed they don 't want it to destroy their product because if it breaks out of the cocoon it 's going to break the thread, and then it 's not as useful as what it would be otherwise, so what they do is they steam. The cocoon at a certain point. The point that it's now matured and it's continued to spin the silk for a period of time, then they steam it. And then they take the cocoon and they put it in boiling water and then the cocoon will just uh, just all of a sudden come apart by itself. The stickiness will be lost and they will have one continuous thread. And so what they want to do is keep that larva from fully maturing or it's going to wreck the cocoon. You know, Satan would just as well want to keep us from fully maturing. And he wants us to just stay in a larva state. And God says, I don't want you to be that. I want you to become the blossom, to to really grow out, to break out of this cocoon and become something that is mature and able to reproduce in Christ. And so you and I will have to say, God, work in me. Metaphors, uh, metaphors uh, yeah, you know what that means. Okay, change me. Work in my mind, work in my heart, and change the way that I used to act when things go wrong. Change me. Instead of getting angry and pouty, change me into a patient, more pleasant person. Change me. From when I things don't work the way that I think they should work, from attacking other people talking about other people, criticizing other people. Change me to somebody that is more gracious to other folk. Change me from somebody who doesn't, who doesn't have thoughts of, of selfishness, who doesn't have thoughts of lust. Change me to somebody that has more of a pure mind. Change me from an individual who isn't so focused about me and what I get and, and, and you know, what's in my account and what's in it for me. To Change me to be a person who is selfless. And so he's saying, God, you know, I need this. Because of your mercies, change me to be a more merciful person, to be more like you. And God, this is what I want. This is what I need. God working in me. God working in us. And he gives us an idea of how this is done. He says to really be changed, it goes this way. It starts by the renewing of your mind. The word that he uses for renewing is regeneration. The change, transformation of your mind. Where all of a sudden your thoughts are different. Because as we think, so we are, he says. And so as, a, as an individual, all of a sudden thinks about others. Oh, i got to change the way that I respond to others. i got to change the way I think. i got to change you know, from being selfish. i got to start thinking different. How do we do that? Time and time again, he says, we add the water of God's word to our mind. We add the water of God's word to our mind. Hey, there's a story. You've probably heard of the comedian, Knockoff Smirnoff. He wrote a book that talks about when he came to America. And in this book there's a quote that I want to share a section that he's talking about how great America is. And he goes on he says, coming from the Soviet Union, I was not prepared for the incredible variety of products available in American grocery stores. While on my very first shopping trip in America he said, I saw powdered, uh, powdered eggs. And he says you just add water and you get eggs. This is a wonderful country. He says, then I looked and I saw that they had powdered juices. You just add water and you get juices. This is a wonderful country. He says, then I looked down the aisle and they had powdered He powdered eggs. Did I say it wrong? Okay. The powdered milk is where I want to be. The powdered milk. You just add water and you get milk. And he says, I saw this is a wonderful country. Then I went down the aisle and I saw that they had <laughs> baby powder. And he wrote, he says, then I saw baby powder. I thought, what an amazing country. We we know, we know that you just don't add water and get the baby. Thank God. Okay. We understand that. We understand that we don't get that much transformation. But what he's talking about in this text is you and I having transformation by adding God's word to our mind. How often do you read God's word? How often have you been memorizing God's word? How frequently do you get yourself under the teaching and the ministry of the word of God? You say, well, yeah, I don't need it. Really? You don't need transformation? You don't need that regeneration of your mind? Well, according to this passage, Paul is writing to believers who have been saved for decades, and he is writing and saying they still needed it. I know I still need it every day. What about you? What about you? When are you adding the water of God's word to your mind so you are renewed, so that your commitments to God Your changes before God are genuine. That's authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity isn't playing church by showing up. Authentic Christianity is living with a commitment every day. Not just on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. It's living for God. It's letting God change you by the renewing of your mind every weekday, every Saturday by letting yourself be exposed to the Word of God being changed, being transformed. Then what he talks about is authentic Christianity becomes a change in your walk daily. Not just in in God change, but here's where he gets into that daily walk, the idea of interacting with other people and interacting with situations in your life that from that metamorphosis now it gets really practical authentic changes that take place and watch what it does it's starting with verse 3 it says this renewing of your mind should change the way you think about yourself look at verse 3 I say through the grace that is given to me to every man that is among you every one of you says I say this to you not to think literally stop thinking Stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soundly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. And he's writing to these believers and he's challenging the believers who have been coming to church for decades. He says, you got to pause. You got to be careful not to become pompous and proud. Here's the change. Instead of being proud, work on humility. Being an individual who says with a sound mind, that is a clear mind, a, a, a mind that has it all together, it's not about me. It's not about you and me. He says think clearly about yourself. This, oh, this whole idea of gathering is not about you or me. This whole idea of, of serving and being here is not about me. What I get out of life and how much fun I can get out of life, it's not about me not to think more highly than we ought. What he does is he says that what we are supposed to do is not to put other people down. Not to say that we are superior because we might have more academics. We might have more uh, skill sets. We might have a different workability. Okay? Some people work different than other people. Some people work faster. Does that make them better? You may have earned more money than another individual. Does that make you better than that individual? You may get better grades than most of us. Does that make you better so that you can stand and pause and say, "Look at me, you know, be be attentive to me." You may have better looks than than me and the majority here. You may have more talents, but he says we're not to think more highly of ourselves because of our position, because of our possessions, because of our appearance. And he warns the believers, believers, believers he has to warn to say, stop becoming proud. Work on being individuals who realize that we are what we are because of grace. Do you see that in the first first part? Paul says, I say because of the grace, through the grace given me. I am what I am. I've accomplished what I've accomplished through grace, not through my skill set. Paul is very clear about that. He even goes on, he says what abilities, what, what ministries I've had, it has been through the measure of the faith. It's the gifts that God has given me, the opportunities that the Spirit has measured out to each and every believer. He says don't think, don't think highly of yourself. By the way, this goes real close, real tight with the next verses. The next verses talk about how we view other individuals. By, by the way, there's a true story that came out about a year, year and a half ago. It was in the Chicago Tribune. It is about an orchestra that has a problem with humility in the, in the orchestra. It's the Beethoven Orchestra that's in Bonn. And what had happened is they had renewed and renegotiated contracts for everybody. But then after it was all done, the, the section of violinists, the 16 of them, they got mad about the contract. They said that they should get paid more than anybody else because they play more notes per symphony. And so they wanted to get, you know, a pay raise based upon notes. And the orchestra owner said, wait a minute. This is, you you don't sound good without the others. This is a team effort. And it's not about piecework of how many notes you play. It's about us playing together and in harmony. You know, you read this story and you go, man oh man, can you imagine how those other orchestra members felt about those 16 violinists? What a way to create disunity. What a way in a body of Christ to create disunity if we think more highly of ourselves and become critical of others. Because others don't do the same thing I do. Because others don't have the same abilities I have. Because others don't have the same measure of faith. And he goes on, he talks about that whole idea of thinking better. And this is now where we get to the fever of the verses. The fever of verses talks about how we interact with one another. How we think about one another. And he says in this next section, right after he says stop thinking highly of yourself, jump down to verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same positions... So we being many are one body in Christ and every one members one of another. I'm going to jump down. Jump down to the, to the next few verses where he gets into in verse 9 and following how we become selfless. And we'll come back to verse 8. He gives us specific statements in how to treat one another even though they have different positions, even though they have different skill sets, even though they may not have the same talents and intelligence and you name it. He says wait a minute, you and I need to pause and remember let love be without dissimulation abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love, honor preferring one another he goes on, he says that what we need to do, and I'm jumping down to verse 13 distribute to the necessity of the saints be given to hospitality bless them that persecute, rejoice with them that rejoice, weep with them, be of the same mind one towards another mind not high things but condescend to men of low estate, be not wise in your own conceits, he's very clear He's very clear. Do not think better of yourself. Do not think that, that your home is too good for other people. Do not think that, that you are better and others should give you accolades and you do not prefer others in front of you. Do not come to the point that you think those poor people, they're, they're just on their own. I, this is mine. I've, I've earned all this and I'm keeping it for my retirement. He says, no, no. You have got to have a compassion, you've got to have an outreach, you have to have active Christianity that's authentic, that isn't just in theory, but comes out of a surrendered heart to God that says, now that God is changing me, I'm going to show changes in my lifestyle. Where in those changes in my lifestyle, I am hospitable. I am having people in my home. I am reaching out to other people. I am not just walking in the door and sitting in my spot and, I, and, and thinking about people come to me. I am reaching out to be friendly to other individuals, to let them be received, let them be welcomed, to extend myself to listen, to get involved with other individuals, to try to know their needs where I can help them out. That I am not being hypocritical but in genuine honest Christian faith I care about other individuals. We need to think less. Now we all get those inspirational stories. We hear them every season the Olympic comes. This winter we'll have a lot of inspirational stories about people who dedicate themselves so as to do their very best to achieve. And we'll hear about courage and determination and fear. But talking about love maybe we go to the wrong Olympics at times. Maybe at times we should pause and go to those who don't have the same skill set, who in our society are considered a little bit less in abilities, a little bit disabled, and yet they seem at times to have a greater understanding of unity than the rest of us. We go to the Special Olympics, the gun sounds. The runners don't speed off. In fact, they don't even stand there the way they're supposed to Like you know, you know, in their position. They're just kind of all standing there talking when the gun sounds. And then they start their run. And none of them is trying to really get far ahead of the others. They're still chit-chatting while they're running. And as they're chit-chatting and running, they're going down this track and there's not much break in this line shoulder by shoulder until one of the ladies falls down. The girl fell down, skinned herself up. The others kept on running for maybe a few meters and then they all paused as a group in the race. They all come back. They help her up. They're brushing the person off. One even kisses the boo-boos on the knees. And then arm in arm, they finish the race with no winner. But guess who won? That's the way we should be. The individuals who care enough Let's say, we need to stop and pause. We need to brush one another off. Maybe we need to kiss the boo-boos sometimes. But have genuine, authentic compassion. The shame of it is, oftentimes in churches, we're not brushing off the boo-boos, we're making more of them. Oftentimes we are swinging the axe of criticism, the swords of division, and slaying our own brethren in Christ. And he says, that ought not to be that way. It starts with a real commitment, a commitment that says, God, you have done so much for me. It's not about me. It's about changing the way I think about other people. In fact, changing the way I think about the body of Christ. In chapters chapter 12, verses 4 and 8 through 8 is dealing with the very same thing he deals with in Ephesians chapter 4, same thing he deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He talks about the body. The body, and I understand it's a local church body. The body of believers who are worshiping together. And he talks about this body and he says in verse 5, we who are many are one body and every one of us members one of another. In other words, we're connected to each other by a spiritual connection. Having then diff- gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophesy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of the faith, the gift given to us. Or ministry, let us then Wait on our ministering. He that teaches has the gift of teaching, hey, teach. He that exhorts, exhort. He that gives, let him do it with simplicity. He that rules, do it with diligence. He that shows mercy, with cheerfulness. You know what he's got going here? He's got going some different thinking, changed thinking than what often happens in churches. He's telling us that we are pieced together as a body. He's telling us that each piece is important. He's telling us that we need all the other pieces. In order to function as individuals, we need the rest of the body. He's telling us that every one of us is valuable. Remember what he just said the verse before? Don't think yourself more highly than you ought. Why? Because we are all needed. We are all valuable. None of us is more important or less important than anybody else. We are designed to contribute or we don't grow as an individual or as a church body. He's got it very clear, very simply in this passage. And yet, here's what American churches have become. To our shame, oftentimes we come to church and we come drive up and fill up our checklist. If it goes this way, you know, I found a convenient parking spot, or, you know, I've I've greeted at the door, check. They gave me a bulletin, check. Uh, I had a good choice of seats, check. Okay, the temperature in the room is okay. By the way, is it okay this morning? Yeah. Yo, know, people were friendly to me, check, okay? Then songs, they did the songs I like, check. You know, the sermon is interesting. I'm not asking any questions about that nor was it too long. I'm not asking anything about that. Yo, know, here we go. It's easy and quick exit. Wow. Hey, it hit all my checklist. This is the church for me. This is where God wants me. That checklist was based all upon you and what you wanted and what pleased you and made you comfortable, right? And we've got such a plethora of opportunities that we get this idea that we're all in competition in the community. And we forget that that really our job is not making ourselves comfortable. Our job is reaching the lost. It's getting out there and, and trying to disciple others for Christ. I was talking to a pastor during our break. And he said, this is the most discouraging part he has in his ministry. is people that come and they make this comment. He said, they're there for a while. And then all of a sudden the people say, oh, the church has changed. I'm not getting anything out of it anymore. And so I'm going to go find another place. You know, and he says, the shame of it is, is there's a pattern. He said there's this typical pattern, and he says they don't realize, first of all, that it starts, church isn't about what you get out of it, and I understand. You, you need to be fed. I know that. I know my job is supposed to make sure that you get the word of God clearly, and you're being fed the word of God. I understand that. I, I know all that. And so I'm, I'm swinging the pendulum to this side that says, it's not about me getting something out of it and people being friendly to me. It's about giving. From your point of view, It's giving. It's giving to the point where, you know, if you really want, if you say, I, I, I don't know if I'm learning as much as I used to, then teach. I'm telling you the truth here. When, it's, when you go to scriptures, you want to learn a lot of scriptures, teach it. You'll learn more by being able to be the one to teach somebody else the word of God. Somebody says, you know, I, I need to be fired up more. Well, then get involved with witnessing and sharing the word of God. Somebody says, I want to be appreciated. Go visit the sick and the elderly. I'm telling you, they'll appreciate you. They desire, they crave it. You say, you wanna, I want to I come to church and feel good. Be charitable. Help out some needy individual. I want to become stronger in the faith. Well, then start reaching out and helping the weaker in the faith. You will get stronger. I want to be challenged. Start a Bible study in your neighborhood. You will get questions that will challenge you, guaranteed. You will be asked, how do you respond to relatives who are going to a gay marriage? What should I do? There's a challenge to work through. How do you respond to it in this day and age? You know, I want to have close friends, and and, and I need close friends. Then start getting involved in a ministry where you work side by side with somebody. The reality is this. God's design is not for you to sit on the sidelines. But this pastor was decrying, he says, here's what typically happens. People stop teaching, and then they say, oh, the church has changed. They stop being involved in ministry. They only show up at one service during the week. They don't come to prayer meeting, and all of a sudden, it's the church's fault. You aren't teaching me as much. People aren't as friendly. Because that person has changed their involvement. They have lessened their interaction with others, and then all of a sudden, the church is failing them. You can't grow unless you're giving. You aren't going to be fired up unless you're contributing. And so he's got this whole section that talks about changing our view and our coming to a point where we realize service to Christ is critical. Watch what he says in verse 11. In verse 11 he says not slothful in business but fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Well you go back to the verses we just mentioned. Having those gifts that differ you who are given the gift of prophesy, prophesy. You who are given the gift of ministry, minister. He that teaches, teach. He that has the gift of exhortation, give exhortation. You that give, give with simplicity. You that rule, do with diligence. He that has mercy, well, be merciful with cheerfulness. What's he saying? We got different ministries. Whatever ministry God has given us, do. Whatever that skill set is, contribute. Get involved. But when you do it, do it with enthusiasm. Do it with joy. Do it with gratitude that you get to be able to serve because of the mercies of God. That this is a privilege of contributing to the body of Christ. That it is a blessing to teach youngsters about Jesus. That it is a joy to be able to to help out so that others can focus in on the ministry of the word of God. Learning that even an ushering aspect is a joyful opportunity to serve Jesus Christ and others. Services lost in this country... We have developed a generation that wants to be served. And we can decry that in the United States, but what about within Christian realm? What about in our church? Is your mindset, serve me, or is your mindset let me serve others? He that teaches, he says teach. You that are given the gift of encouragement, you encourage with encouragement. He that gives, do it generously. He goes on, he that is leading, do it with an eagerness to lead and the opportunity to lead. You who are merciful, do it with cheerfulness. Change the thinking that's church and worship and ministry is not a chore. It is a privileged blessing from God Almighty. fact, you and I need to just get a hold of this a whole lot more. That we are needed. Uh, Dangerous ground. But make a real, real point. Faith Baptist is a larger church than the typical average church. Therefore, we don't need as many people to serve. Change your thinking on that. Change your thinking. We are crying for help for teachers. We are weak in people ministering. We are always needing volunteers. People who would say, I will minister with joy and gladness not peoples who would say I've done my time. Really? Is that what teaching is? It was a penalty? It was an imprisonment? I understand the term. When that's stated, that's not your intent. But giving out God's word. What a privilege! What an honor! We need to have a mindset of this little boy out of St. Petersburg. His mom, Jamie Scott, was real concerned because he came home and he's going out for the elementary play. And her son is a little, a little backwards in many ways. Very shy, not outward going. Didn't even have a real good imagination. And obvious, he was one of those that even in his speech he wasn't one of those typical you know, bright lights in front of a crowd. And so she was really concerned. The day of the tryouts came and she decided, I'm going to show up at school I'll pick him up instead of him taking the usual bus. And we'll have, you know, grandma, grandpa will be along and we'll take him and do something fun because he's not getting a part. and He's going to be really discouraged. So she's waiting there and the boy sees her car and so instead of running the bus, he's running up to the car and he was so excited. She was shocked. She said, Did you get the part you were after? No! But he said, I got something much better. I get to sit off the the side of the stage and clap for everybody else. He's a cheerleader. Excited to be a cheerleader. What a mindset. What a change. What a change from where we are usually told we need to be the main star or we're not going to contribute. To have a mindset that says, I will find joy in helping others. A mindset that says, hey wait a minute, I need to change two other areas quickly. The way I view difficulties. Watch. Verse 12, he says, got to change, change, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Then he jumps down verse 14, bless them which persecute you, he says, and curse not, rejoice with them that do rejoice, weep with them that weep. His mindset is this, instead of pouting, we be prayerful. A change that says instead of being overcome, we, now, we, we are going to overcome. It's in a mindset that says God knows the believers and he's saying I'm going to assume you are already praying. Continue in prayer. No matter what the trial is, continue in prayer. He says that we are supposed to be rejoicing with them that rejoice. We, but we're to be helping others in the middle of our own struggles. We're to be like Jesus on the cross that is concerned about others around him. We're to be empathetic towards others, even others who are out of our region, even others who are out of our realm, but believers in Christ, especially the body that we deal with. And then he concludes with this. Change the way you respond to people who offend you. People who have hurt you. People who are saying things about you that aren't true. People who are saying things about you that are true but shouldn't be said. People who are who are mean to you, people who are not kind to you. That's what he's going to deal with now in verses 17. As he's talking about how we interact with one another, he says, Recompense to no man, evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. And if it be possible, as much as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, stop avenging yourselves, but rather give place unto give place or let wrath be put off. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. For in so doing you shall heap coals of fire on his head. Stop being overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. The comments make it very clear. We're going to face offenses. And it could happen within this body. Somebody might say something that'll irritate, that'll bother. He says you're not supposed to hold a grudge, but deal with the offenses ASAP. Change the way that you normally do things change instead of being angry for 10 years, 15 years and then all of a sudden you blow up and you let somebody finally know that you've been upset change that, change that, you know there's a story that comes about a husband and wife who got mad at each other, they now have gotten to a point where they are not talking and they, they are not talking at all to each other at all for several days. Well the day comes the man in the next morning is going to leave for a very important business trip. And he has to get up very early in the morning to catch his very early flight. The airport's just 10 minutes down the road but he has to wake up like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning to get up to get there so he can catch his flight and just doesn't have to check in anything but just get there and get on time. But he's got to wake up and he's not normally an early riser. His wife is the one that usually wakes him up but he's not been talking to his wife for the last few days. So if he talks to her, he's the one that's going to then basically be saying I'm wrong and he's going to break this down and there's no way he's going to be the first one to talk. So he just left her a note. He wrote it. He said, I have a flight at, you know, early in the morning you need to wake me up at 5 a.m. so I don't miss the flight. And he left it on her pillow. Next morning comes, you know, 7.30, 8 o'clock, he wakes up. He realizes I missed the flight, all this, and he's getting really angry. Why didn't she wake me up? And then he rolls over and he finds a note on his pillow. It's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) Easy to hold grudges. Let's not be silly. Let's not be silly like those individuals. Let's be an individual that when somebody offends, let's change. Let's change. Let's do what this passage says. Somebody is saying something to us. Somebody has ticked us off. It might be a spouse. It might be a kid. It might be a parent. It could be a cousin, an in-law, an outlaw. It could be somebody that you're working with. How do you respond? Especially to a believer in the body of Christ. How do you respond? He says Heap, he calls a fire upon their head. To understand that you got to go back in the ancient Near East you got to go back into that, that A&E world, the ancient Aries, where what they did is they didn't have matches, they didn't have the lighters. And so what they would do is they would keep a hot coals going continuously. And so they didn't have to restart this. And if, so if somebody comes to you and you would say, okay, I'm going to help them out, I'll give them one or two coals, and obviously you're not going to carry a coal this way. They would put it on a container and usually carry it on their head, you know, walking down the street with the water or the other container. And he's saying, if somebody comes to you don't be miserly with the coals. If they have done you wrong, heap the coals on their head. Shower them with kindness. Do the opposite of what your body wants to do, what your thought, be renewed in your mind so you think and you act different. Show acts of grace and generosity no matter who it is. The text is saying no matter what it was that they did no matter how you feel He says what you should do is be transformed, where it affects your everyday life, not just here in this room when you come to worship, but on a daily basis, be changed. And whatever is possible, live peaceably with individuals. Don't do the Hatfield McCoys. You know this feud. It started when the one accused the other of stealing one of his pigs, And they got mad, never proven whether he stole them or not, and it grew into a feud that was on those state borders between West Virginia and Kentucky. Dozens of people died. It lasted for a hundred and some years that these families were fighting. It even went to the State Supreme Court of Kentucky. When they went over, when some went over, and they grabbed a number of their enemies and brought them into the state so that they could have them stand for trial, it went to the State Supreme Court whether or not you could kidnap somebody to bring them back across to stay on trial in the state. I mean, it got so silly. It got so silly. Finally, there's a treaty that is signed. It got so ridiculous, they sign a treaty between two families. And this treaty read, we do hereby informally declare an official end to all the hostilities. 120 some years later. How silly. Implied, inferred, and real between us now and forever. And then they make the statement, we ask by God's grace and love. If they were operating by God's grace and love, there should have been no feud. If they were originally operating by God's grace and love, there should have been no need for a treaty. If they were authentic from the beginning where some of them claimed to be born again and they were fighting, they were pretending. What are you pretending to be today? Or what are you really? Are you this make-believe superhero or are you an authentic Christian who is committed to Christ and who has said, I will change the way I live in my everyday life. There's an individual who, Frances Havergal, who's an individual who wrote a number of our hymns. And she came to a point in her life, she grew up in a Christian home, was saved at a young age. She lived only until her early 30s then passed away, but in that time she wrote a number of hymns. She said, I came to a point in my life where I, outwardly it looked like everything was right, but I knew that inwardly my attitude was wrong towards some people. I knew that I wasn't as sold out to Christ the way I should be. And she says, and it challenged me of how I should really be serving others. It challenged me how I should be sharing the word. It challenged me in my my devotional reading about how I should be totally dedicated. And she came to a point where she said, I prayed and I had a time with the Lord and I gave the Lord a prayer. And I took that prayer and I made it into a song. And she says, this was my moment of authentic commitment that I had in my life. I'm going to invite you to pray with me this morning by singing this song. If you are genuine to say, this is what I want to do this day. I really want to give my life to the Lord. To really be genuine, authentic. Not just give my intentions, but take my life. Take my love. Take my all. If you're here this morning you would like to talk with somebody about being sure of your eternal destiny, as we sing, you can exit those doors where our staff are headed for right now. They'll take you down the hall into private rooms and share the word with you. If you're a Christian who's struggling, feel free to go and talk and to have prayer while we sing this prayer of commitment to the Lord.